So the joy of a, of a video podcast is now I can see what you're up to. So Phil, it's- Yeah, wait, it. hold on. I just realized something. Yeah. Did you know that when you record this podcast, it puts a little, um, I'm serious. This is the first time I'm realizing this. It puts a little red rec button at the top of my screen. You've remoted, into, you've remoted into my phone. Phil, this, this just shows the world uh, that you truly work in the service industry and not, you're not in white collar, mush monkey mode. Like <laughs> <laughs> all of us know that, that little thing all too well by now. So do you guys record, like, I guess this is a question off the topic of the podcast. Do you guys record your meetings and stuff for like future? It's like, you, you know how you take notes at meetings and stuff. Is it like you record them now or what's, what's the deal? Yeah. I mean, you can, we've, we've had a couple trainings like in, in house that we've, we've recorded because it, you know, there's, there's value to it down the road. But uh, yeah, mo most of the time, like our run of the mill team meeting, not really leaving that alone, which allows me to fire off, you know, more, uh, lewd jokes um i'm kind of the you, tom, okay that i'm was kind of the tom brenneman of the staff <laughs> oh no but that was gonna be my next question about um have you what have you gotten in any trouble yet by realizing your mic wasn't muted when you thought it was a la tom brenneman no i see i live my, my girlfriend's home with me most of the time and she is so paranoid about exactly that. like she she's she'll like whisper around her phone like if we're talking shit about someone we know she like whisper around it because she doesn't trust that the phone the phone might be listening. Like she's, oh, she's okay, very, so she's, she's very like she's read like two of those horror stories about yeah you know, surveillance and uh, that's all it took. So I'm I'm conscious of that myself, um, but it'll happen. I mean, Tom Tom Brenneman was not a uh, it was a hot mic situation actually. So. Yeah, that was a hot mic situation. He thought he was still on commercial break. So do you want to just get Tom Brenneman out of the way now? Yeah, I think that's probably, it's a good segue, certainly about the mics and the recording and all that stuff. First of all, he's Tom, he's Tom Brenneman until, until he fixes things. Yeah, what is that? You don't get to be Tom spell? with an H and, and <laughs> also be a bigot at the same time. Um, but yeah, Tom Brenneman, uh, broadcaster for the Cincinnati Reds, um, was doing a, a web show, I believe, for, for the Reds. And there was a hot mic situation where he didn't know the mic was on. And he was talking about how Kansas City um, was the uh, F-word homophobic slur capital of the world, or one of the capitals of the world. And Which is, first of all, besides the point, I, I, was, I never have thought that I, Kansas City has had any sort of <laughs> reputation for being like a hotbed for like, uh gay people yeah you know you know the gay capitals of the world provincetown yeah. seattle uh kansas san francisco <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and then kansas city flint michigan yeah that was <laughs> that was um a little strange but um but then so he got and by the way he when he said the word he put some emphasis on that hard, word yeah hard, hard f and v in, in that um no no like look around to see if anyone <laughs> so anyways, he says that no one knew about it honestly i didn't know about it until he apologized for it or tried to apologize for it um, on air yeah oh the, but can you talk about the on-air apology the on-air apology he is attempting to do the shittiest apology template possible which is the, you know he did the whole i'm a man of faith thing blah 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 yeah my, my my record speaks for itself uh i'm sorry to anyone that i offended i'm sorry to my bosses 
basically the the I don't want to get fired, but I want to say something strategy. And yeah. good old thumb. Which well, hold on before we get into that. Why does so? What's the strategy on? Was it uh, what is or what is the Reds um, broadcast? I think, a, I think it's a Fox affiliate. Yeah. Okay. So what's the strategy with letting him continue with the broadcast? Why not just um, like right when that happens? Why not just immediately pull him? What's the strategy there? Well, again, I don't think that that many people knew about it until his apology. His apology oh, made okay. infinitely more uh, a public and worse because you kind of got a peek into who he really is. But he, um, yeah, he he is attempting to apologize in the "Don't Get Fired" strategy, and then he, in the middle of his apology, uh, Nick Castellanos, a, a nice player for the Reds hits a bomb to left field and Tom Brenneman just focus sorry Tom Brenneman just focuses on the three-run dinger and uh refuses or doesn't even go back to his attempt at an apology because the home run has failed him. <laughs> but you know what this it was the saddest home run call I've ever heard in my life it was just right in the middle of you know this is not the man I was raised to be as Castellanos hits a three-run ball, <laughs> and then he just goes, it's like, what? you do you either have to, like, just, just not even mention yeah. that, like, he hits the home run, or you have to kind of, like, I don't even know what you do there. But the whole spectacle of a, trying to apologize while there's game action was just so hilarious. I mean, the whole situation wasn't funny because it was bad what he said, but this is the apology – should live on forever. I think it was one of the funniest moments in baseball history. I I really do hate to laugh because it's so dumb. Um, but the thing about him is you can tell that he's so there, there's a there's like a broadcast. I don't know if there's an actual like nomenclature for it or title for it, but it's it's the Vince Scully school where you're just so good at telling a story in the course of an inning while you're calling a baseball game that you can kind of weave in the action. So it's like. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, back in, in 86, I was talking with Bob Gibson, there's Seeger, uh, foul tip, third base, and, it just, and you go right back into the story. And it's, yeah, right back. Vince really does story. it better than anyone, obviously better than I just did there. And you can tell that Don Brenneman's brain is just programmed to handle <laughs> things in that way. So as if, he's, <laughs> as if he's just telling a story about meeting Bob Gibson. Um, <laughs> and then Nick Castellanos hits but really, But really is career slipping away like what do you think we can get off this in a second but I'm always I've always kind of had like a sort of like morbid fascination with these kind of events where like um who was it it wasn't it, was, in the throat. it wasn't Dan rather was it Dan Williams the helicopter guy and I Brian he made up the Brian Williams yeah I've always had like a morbid fascination with these like people who get in like really deep shit and then have to go on air and like apologize I wonder just like how you handle that, like as a human being. That that would be a really fun, like YouTube dive. I mean, so many people, yeah. so many people post me too, um, have had to do things like that. Al Roker, Matt Lauer, I'm imagining people who had to come on air and, you know, have, have lost their. Like Ellen DeGeneres is in a ton of trouble Ellen. now. Yeah. I mean, you, there, there have been like, obviously Kevin Spacey, those types of guys. But, like, um, yeah, you, you wonder how these people, like, handle, like, being publicly shamed to the nth degree, you know? It's like, it can't – I'm not saying it's okay what they're doing, but, man, that cannot be an easy thing to deal with and carry around for the rest of your life. 
Yeah, I imagine there's a lot of kicking and screaming to the finish line for a lot of these people. Um, you know, Tom Brennan probably did not want to do this at all, um, and you can tell that through his apology. But uh, but to, to the to the point of of what Brennan actually said, um, it is and for him to say like he didn't know that 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 word would would cause problem what well he clearly did know that because of the way he emphasized the word like, <laughs> yeah. you know the, I, okay if you haven't heard the clip yet i would recommend listening to it because i think we're not doing it justice how much hatred and vitriol there was behind the way he said the word complete indifference to the to to and, and homophobia just, just dripping all over the whole thing yeah uh, yeah, so so we normally end the podcast by talking about our Eric Burns uh, bike ride of the week. Uh, Tom Brenneman will be. Doing- yeah, he's got to be the unanimous. Uh, <laughs> that is, that's it's really bad. And honestly, this is the other thing about baseball. Baseball already has this reputation of being the boys' club, and you know, it's the demographic is old white men. And having people who go on and Tom Brenneman, I I don't really like to get into the whole identity politics of it, but he's an old, older white man. And it just kind of reinforces this notion when things like this happen that, you know, this is always going to be the boys club and it's only for a select few of people. Whereas like the NBA is so much more trying to be inclusive and, and and baseball has an image problem with that. So it's, it really is actually, I know it's funny to talk about his apology and everything, but there's no doubt about it. If that I mean, I saw that uh, clip go on CNN. So it's it hurt the game. There's just no there's no two ways about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, baseball is is uh, feeling stodgier by the day. Um, I think. Yeah. And uh, that that culture uh, can just go the hell away because it's it's it doesn't uh, it doesn't bring people to the ballpark like. Uh, one might have thought a few years ago then that that just like I, I, uh, America grab ass hot dog yeah. like, like culture. it's not it's not the national mindset anymore no. but uh, good news on this run I did hear that um, Tom they already figured out Tom and Brenneman's replacement it's actually Aubrey Huff <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna double down on it yeah. they got so much attention for Reds games that they want more f-bombs and homophobia <laughs> Oh God! Wow, it's really too bad. So, so full disclosure here, we kind of hinted at it. Um, uh, I think towards the end of one of the last podcasts, that uh, Aubrey Huff was one of our attempted guests of the podcast, um, and our goal was to lure Aubrey Huff, uh, noted social justice warrior, hater, um, and just all around uh, mega lord on Twitter. Yeah, that's a good way to describe him. He's a very He's MAGA, but he's like almost a step farther than MAGA. He is. He, he's serious. <laughs> like. Yeah, like, he's like very. Like he was. He was like, MAGA before Donald Trump came in. How do we describe his political? He's like fringe right, I suppose you would say. Like. He's like a, one of those Punisher T-shirts if it was a person. Yeah, exactly. that's a great way to describe. <laughs> Or like a goatee if it was a full human. But he's, uh, he's very, he, like, just to give people a, a perspective, go on his Twitter if you have, like, five minutes, but you'll get the picture very quickly. But he has all these tweets about how, like, a, we should bring Iranian women over to um, the United States and make them our slaves and stuff like that and weird shit like that. And he's, like, pro-gun, which is fine, but he's pro-gun to the uh, 
point where you you probably don't want a guy who wants that guns that badly to ever have a gun if you understand what i'm saying like yeah yeah it's that it's weird he's shooting with the intent to kill yeah we um yeah we, we our attempt was to dm aubrey huff and to lure him onto the podcast and uh <laughs> just fuck with him <laughs> for lack of a better word uh we had we had several questions lined up one of which i remember being um asking him if he was upset that his former team the uh, Tampa Bay Devil Rays are no longer called the Devil Rays and that they're removing religion from baseball. Uh, <laughs> Scott Service with the SS. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were going to really, really fuck with Aubrey, but he did not reply to our DM. So uh, Aubrey Huff will not be joining the show. You should tell him it was very well-crafted. I have to give Brandon a lot of credit for this one. The message that he sent him, I saw was very well-crafted in the way it wasn't like over the top. No. But the whole – there was going to be a ruse we were going to try and pull where, you know, we tried to bring him on thinking, oh, we're, we're part of your – we have the same mindset. We have the same mentality as you. And we hate wokeness in baseball and we think it's ruining the sport, blah, 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 blah. And then just try and get him on the podcast so then we could kind of start fucking with him. But it, it didn't work. He didn't respond. So Yeah. Yeah. The, the Trojan horse of the DM in which I attempted to, um, to be a SJW hater as well. <clears throat> I think that was – that was good. Our questions were good. Aubrey's just a busy guy. You know, he's, he's, he's <laughs> taking a lot of interviews, taking too many interviews with Breitbart to, uh, to really, <laughs> that's, that's fine. Um, all right, let's, should we talk baseball? Should yeah, let's talk baseball. Politics. Mariners, the Mariners baseball specifically. Um, yeah. So over the weekend, the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. <laughs> so I had, Promise we talk baseball and then talk about basketball. Yeah. Anyways, Philadelphia 76ers just got. <laughs> All right, we're already way out of my out of my comfort zone here. But but listen here. So Brett Brown was the coach of the Sixers, and Brett Brown has now been fired after the the Sixers were swept. Brett Brown was okay. the coach of the Sixers through uh, your beloved process, something you take you stayed uh, kind of you know cursorily aware of. Um, yeah, I know and, about the process, and I like the process. I think it was a good thing to do. Brett, absolutely. Brett Brown was the coach throughout that. So he was the coach of the 10 and 72 Sixers. He was the coach yeah. of the you know Eastern Conference Finals Sixers um, from or Eastern Eastern Conference Semifinals, a game away from beating the Raptors last year team, um, and of course of this team. And he was fired um, because ultimately he had. Um, he was a little bit of a scapegoat, scapegoat, but a lot of deficiencies as a as a tactician um, coaching this team. And so basically, you know, he had he had done his part. He had gotten them through the process, endured a lot, uh, but he was since fired. Does this well, remind I you just, of a future future manager in our lives who might might fall under the same fate in a few years? Okay, so I don't know basketball that well, but. He just got to the Eastern Conference Finals, and he just got fired this year? Eastern Conference Semifinals last year. This year, just got swept in the first round. Okay, but listen to what you just said. He went from 10-72. and 72. He took over – did he take over the team when they were 10-72? and 72? He took over the team, I think, the, the year after – I don't know what the specific transition of process was, but the year after they started trading away all of their good players, um, and then he was – the coach for the rock bottoming and then the slow climb up to uh so what that's the process worked i mean of course they haven't ultimately climbed the mountaintop but so few teams in any sport ever get to the climb the mountaintop because when you get into a four game series it's a it's not a crapshoot 
but it is a it's a it's it's a lot of luck it's a lot of small sample size I don't know exactly if it's the same thing in basketball but in baseball you look at the Washington Nationals they were not the best team last year they won the World Series but they were not the best team the Houston Astros uh, cheating and stuff aside were the best team last year so I don't think it's fair, and I'll get to the Scott Service comparison in a second, but I don't think it's fair to fire this guy for two bad playoff performances when he turned a team – he stuck with the team through 10-72 and 72 all the way to a perennial contender. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of, of Sixers-specific politics that kind of make this situation um, a little thornier than, uh, than perhaps we'd, you know – have with the Mariners going forward but yes you, you you caught my attention there or you caught my 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 comparison with um Scott Service to Brett Brown both alliteratively named uh which is funny but uh Scott Service right now is in the druthers right the the win-loss record of the Mariners this year uh for all intents and purposes last year and maybe the next year is irrelevant Scott Service will probably be the manager through all of that uh Scott Service will probably be the manager for the first Mariners playoff team um, or, or contending playoff team. Uh, and then there might be a point where Scott Service uh, is not the master tactician or truly great manager that would that take this team past the hump. And so like I, a Joe it was, Madden type. It, exactly. It was just a little Which, bit of. Why is Joe point. Madden on the Angels when they're not ready to compete? He's well, not the right guy for that team right now. There's this thing about the Angels, Phil, where they have no idea. <laughs> who they are and yeah. actually uh, build a team. Um, that is, that's true. That. But anyways, that was, that was just the thought of there goes Brett Brown. And I, I, there's no way to know, but I, it's, it's, I could see Scott service being that in that exact same position in a few years. Well, I'll tell you what I'd like to see with Scott service when the Mariners are ready to compete. I think we've already, so unlike Brett Brown, I think we've already seen Scott service. I don't know. Brett Brown that well, but Scott Service, we got to see him when he was managing to win. We saw him from 2016 till 2000, let's call it 18. So three seasons where he actually put together a concerted effort to win. He wasn't looking to, you know, it wasn't the emphasis hadn't shifted yet to player development. The emphasis with those teams was Cano. Okay, you got Cano, you got Cruz, you got Seeger, you got Zanino. You've got all these guys who are ready to win now. Let's put out a playoff team. Scott Service didn't get us there. Is that entirely his fault? Absolutely not. It very rarely is the manager's entirety. of. You can question his decisions and his bullpens and, you know, his – I know there were issues with Segura and D. Gordon in the clubhouse, so you can question all of that. But I think what we're seeing now is undeniably – I he's – really a good manager to have through a rebuilding process maybe he wasn't the right guy at the beginning but weirdly enough he's turned into the right guy as the as the club's mindset has shifted more towards a future orientation so when they are ready to uh compete again i would like to see him not be fired but um maybe retransit or transitioned into a a more of a player development role and i think the role of a traditional manager in baseball is going away anyway Mm -hmm. uh, you're seeing it with, uh, you know, Rocco Baldelli with the Twins and uh, Tingler or, uh, with the Padres. And these guys are not so much managers in the traditional sense as they are, um, 
I guess you could call them more like player development type of, of, extensions of, of, of the front office. Yeah. Extensions of the front office. That's exactly right. Yep. They're taking basically the directives from the front office and they are trying to, the front office is cooking up their plans and then it's the manager's goal to try and get the players to execute on those plans. Yeah. Uh, I think I can, you know, like I said, service will, will have this job until he starts failing at what the task is. And if mm-hmm. the task right now is player development, there's a lot of positive things we'll talk about in just a second that um, he can hang his hat on and is, is doing a good job with that. And seems to be well-liked by, by young players and is getting results out of them um, that are favorable. Once the task becomes win the AL West, you know, uh, make it to the World Series, then the criteria will change. And uh, he will have to answer to different types of questions that he currently has to right now. And, you know, the one thing I'm worried about with the DePoto regime as a whole is it seems like there's a propensity, not, I don't want to call it cronyism, but it seems like he really has the guys that he likes. I mean, he's known Scott Service since his days in the Angels organization. That's why he brought him over, you know, to Seattle when he got the job here. So I'm worried that maybe he is a little bit overly loyal to guys who have shown that they don't have the necessary or the requisite skill set. To I mean, I think Skirt Service is a fine player development guy, but I, I again, I do question just based on the couple of years we saw of him trying to compete, yeah. what we really have as a as a manager when we're looking to push towards the playoffs. Yes. Uh, let's talk about some of those guys who uh, Scott Service is in charge of de- developing. And, and so this first out, we'll talk about the things that are happening so far that we would like to have stick around because they are awful nice and awful nice. Mm-hmm. And the first one, uh, we have to revisit Kyle Lewis. Um, probably will. Uh, yeah, I, th- I feel like this, this is going to be a podcast to podcast thing. Kyle Lewis um, had... Uh, a very, very torrid start to the year um, that was deemed unsustainable through his his first basically half of the season so far. And then the second half, he has uh, been even better than that. So now there is, in this shortened season, it's considerable buzz for Kyle Lewis to be the rookie of the year in the American League. Um, and he has done all of the things we asked him to. His, his walk rate has come up. His strikeout yeah. rate has come down. Um, he still baffles me in the fact that he really only hits singles and home runs, but this is a really, really intriguing player that I don't think we were ready at the beginning of the year to say, is Kyle Lewis a cornerstone part of your offense? But it sure seems like right now that's what he is. Yeah, I have some thoughts here and I guess all my thoughts are going to end in questions because like you said, it's so early and it's tough to tell but it baffles me that what we always had the biggest knock on Kyle Lewis was you know he swings and misses too much and that leads to a high strikeout rate he chases the ball too much and he chases out of the zone and this year especially in the last 15 or so games if you break it up 15 games to 15 games and I know that's a small sample but it seems as though his his uh so we talk about this metric a lot his Z swing minus his O swing. So his swings inside the strike zone minus his swings outside the strike zone. Yep. He's, yep. He is basically Joey Votto level play discipline right now. 
And that's just seemingly come out of nowhere. He never was, he never was doing that. And even in the minor leagues against double A against far inferior competition. But now it seems like he understands the strike zone very well. He's only swinging at pitches that he can do damage to. And then he's not swinging through the pitches. It's, it's completely the most, and I have been watching baseball for a very long time, my whole life. This is the most radical sort of and I again maybe I'm falling into a small sample size but I mean even the eye test it looks like it it's the most radical transformation of a skill set in such a short period of time I have ever seen that's not true that you're you're forgetting about the time when Mike Carp became an MVP candidate for like a month yeah uh, <laughs> but even that like you can explain that away with okay it's fluky Babbitt and stuff the last 50, and in the start of Lewis's season, when he was still striking out over 35% of the time, and, of, and every single time he was putting the bat in the ball, you could say, yeah, well, of course, that's going to that's gonna, – that Babbitt's going to come back to earth and he's going to be in some trouble. But now you look at the underlying metrics, the ones that pretend success in the future, and you're looking at a guy with elite plate discipline, drawing walks, hitting for power, and putting the bat on the ball – if that continues, I the, there's real and and I don't know why it should continue because that's never been uh, Kyle Lewis' skill set, but all of a sudden it's just become part of his game, and I I think that's what we have to look at going forward. Throw the batting average and all that other stuff out the window. Keep looking at where he's going on his swing and miss mm-hmm. and his plate discipline because right now it's elite. And that if, if he can turn that into an elite skill, which was something that was constantly his bugaboo, you're looking at a perennial all-star. I, maybe we were underselling him. But, again, this is – it's very small sample, but it's something to definitely raise an eyebrow at. So my, my 50-minute fan graph uh, deep dive on, on Kyle Lewis, which constitutes a, a full Major League scouting report um, in, in effectiveness. Basically, what, what Kyle Lewis mm-hmm. has seemed, seeming, seemingly he did this year – was just stopped swinging the bat as often. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his zone swing percentage is down four and a half percent from from what it was last year. His contact is up four percent uh, while on swings in the zone. Chase down thirteen percent, so chasing thirteen percent less often. His contact when he chases is up eight percent. So his selectivity is just infinitely better than than it was last year. Uh, a little and bit I know those percentages may sound small to like the a- average person, but those are huge, huge changes. You don't see year over year changes like that ever. Yeah. And and his his power is a little bit down in terms of exit velocity and and you know like I said a lot of extra base hits left on the table, but um, it's it is really really remarkable how he has just become and not even this year to la- or this year to last year. 15 games ago to 15 to now like mm-hmm. he, he's just had a marked change in how his approach to the plate has, has changed. It's, it's, it's nothing short of incredible. Again, I, I, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I've never seen a player take a weakness or a, a known weakness. We, what did we always say when Kyle Lewis came up even last year? Like, yeah, the home runs are going to be there. They're going to be great, but he's going to swing and miss a lot and he's going to chase a lot. And now all of a sudden, I've never seen a marked improvement like that before. It's just, it's incredible. And that's why I love baseball. You get surprised by things like this every so often. And I think in the bigger picture, you need in, in, to have a successful reset or rebuild or reimagine or restructure or whatever DePoto wants to call it. You need to have surprises like this. The Astros had surprises with Jose Altuve. They had 
surprises with Alex. Well, Bregman was a, a, you know, top 10 pick, but they certainly didn't project. No one projected Bregman to be the perennial MVP candidate that he is. Uh, everyone thought he was going to be a nice, solid, everyday third baseman, and now he's an. You need surprises like that, and for the Mariners to have one, it's it's hard to overstate. If this is true, it's hard to overstate just how important having a cornerstone center, and not to even to mention his defense. Everyone thought he was a left fielder, uh, Kyle Lewis. It's hard, and now he's playing center and he's playing it competently. Yeah. It's hard to overstate just how much value that's going to add to the rebuild. The play he made in, in center field in, in Dodger Stadium, uh, moving to his left to catch a ball at the wall, borderline robbed a home run, was just so – and that, that, that word has been something that you and I have said a lot in, in text about Kyle this year is effortless. The power is effortless. <laughs> the, the tracking of balls in center field is effortless. It, it's, it's a very uh, confident dude out there right now um, who's like, – like you just said, I mean, he's, he's, he's just – changed the trajectory of, of a lot of things by the way he's, he's playing now this has to sustain and who the hell knows what this season means in the long term because of how short it is um but if 85 percent of this holds you have yeah. a, a starting all-star caliber all-star caliber yeah. uh outfielder for and if 100 percent of it holds you have an mvp yes uh, and I don't even mean just like 100% of it holds with the fluky Babbitt luck and all that stuff. I mean just if 100% of his underlying metrics hold, he is like a perennial MVP candidate. That elite zone discipline mixed with his power and his lack of uh, uh, whiffing right now, mm-hmm. that is – that's uh, – that I and if you would ask me and held, hold a gun to my head and say, do you think this will continue? I would just based off track record say I don't think so. But uh, who knows? Who knows at this point? Yeah. Let's talk about another nice thing that's holding up, and that's uh, a guy we talked about uh, recently, but whose, whose success has only continued in a couple more starts since his first really nice start, and that's Justin Sheffield. Um, his his yeah. strike zone command, um, his, his first, first, first pitch strike percentage is, is much higher than, than the average, um, and he looks like a completely different guy than that guy we saw for the first start. I don't know if that was – in Oakland or, or what that was, but um, pitching confidently, getting guys out, um, and being very, very efficient on the mound. Justin Sheffield, what have you seen out of him so far? Do you want to know a fun stat? This is actually a fun Mariner stat, not a, like a depressing Mariner stat. <laughs> yeah, that's, this is new. Yeah, hit it. Hit me. Uh, so the Mariners, by war, and everyone knows war by now, we use it enough, by war, they have the number one rookie position player, and the number one rookie pitcher. And those are obviously Kyle Lewis and Justice Sheffield. So oh, It's funny to me that this is Justice Sheffield's third MLB season in which he has had an appearance in the major leagues, but he is a rookie. So, yeah, because he's been so up and yeah. down, up and down, you know. So he's still technically a rookie right now, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. that's – I mean, if you go by fielding independent pitching met- metrics, Justice Sheffield has a FIP, which, again, that'll take account for – Basically, you can't hold against Justice Sheffield what happens with his defense. Mm -hmm. I think we've made that pretty clear in past podcasts, but I know it's still something that's hard to wrap your head around, so I want to reiterate. Once the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, it's really out of his control what happens to it. So what FIP, Fielding Independent Pitching Metrics, attempt to do 
is say, let's just try and give the pitcher credit or penalize the pitcher for what he's responsible for. So ERA doesn't do that. ERA is simply how many runs are going across the board and how many innings. FIP is a little bit more sophisticated in that um, it tries to parse out what really is the pitcher's responsibility and what really is the fielding's responsibility and what of it is luck. Because as we know, there's a lot of luck in baseball and you can't really bank on the same luck year to year. Anyway, all that being said, Justice Sheffield is in the top 10 of all major league pitchers in FIP right now. Take that as you will. His ERA, if you like more traditional metrics, he's sitting at a 3.5 ERA, which is still very good. Mm -hmm. So by any sort of metric you look at, he's been a really good pitcher this year. And, and that's, I think, in large part due to those mechanical adjustments we saw implementing the two-seamer. And it seems like he's throwing that two-seamer consistently for strikes, getting ahead of guys. He talked on the po – uh, or not on the podcast, but they're doing this thing now on um, – Mariners broadcast where they're talking to the pitcher the night who just pitched the night prior yep. about, Hey, how did that start go? Blah, blah, blah. And he even expounded the virtues of, Hey, I need to get ahead. Oh, one. Oh, one is the most important count in, in the game. Yeah. I was, uh, I was reading a little bit about the, there's kind of conflicting science or, or uh, theories on whether first pitch strikes are overrated. Uh, to me, it's like, <laughs> First, how could they possibly be be overrated, right? Like changes the whole complexion of the at bat. Now, now, now you say, okay, what from the time you have a first pitch strike, you still have to throw four balls to get a walk, or now you only have to throw two strikes to mm -hmm. strike somebody out. I mean, that's it's that simple. It's the control control the zone, uh, same philosophy of, of one one count. You throw, you know, throwing the ball versus throwing a strike is infinitely changes the outcomes of the at bat. So, um, just throwing strikes, and that's something that when we saw Sheffield that first appearance could not locate at all yeah. fastballs all over the place um and you know he looked great in his last uh inter squad game Brand, before, yeah. before that so um this you know really the first start is kind of the anomaly for him uh yeah in the course, in the course of of you know the last five six times we've seen him throw so really really good signs with sheffield and the two-seamer i love the two-seamer the more i think about it because the two-seamer moves one way the slider moves the other way and he can still, if he wants to go to the top of the zone, he can still throw a four-seamer. It's not like he's not allowed to throw the four-seamer anymore. Mm -hmm. But obviously, the two-seamer is the better pitch. And I think I remember talking to you about this right before his first start. What we wanted to see was we wanted to see him. He's not a guy who plays to the top of the zone like Garrett Cole. He's a guy who needs to play to the bottom of the zone. And he got lit up in the first start. And that was because he was up, up, up. And now as you've seen him sort of get his feet under him and start understanding the pitcher that he is, everything's low in the zone. Just like we – and I know this is not a secret. I'm sure DePoto and Service were telling him the same thing. You need to go low in the zone. I'm not, you know, breaking any sort of amazing, you know, news to him. But, like, a pitcher with his arsenal needs to stay at the knees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this is all – This is. I mean, it's not a surprise. I mean, they traded James, James Paxton for Sheffield. Um, so, you know, a, a value guy, and again, James Paxson dealing with injury as we speak. So yeah. um, what's, what's new there, but, but uh, you know, I don't know if they expected this back. It's kind of like the Gene Segura for, for JP Crawford trade. If you were getting something, you were getting a project or of, of a one, once really highly regarded prospect who had taken a dip and you're kind of giving yeah. them that, that second chance. Uh, yeah, DePoto loves those post-type prospects. Exactly, to, to, to play up to it. And we're seeing that with Sheffield. Uh, J.P. Crawford is 
uh, taking a little bit of a dip, but, but we'll yeah, talk. you know, I, can I mention him really quickly? I, I'm not super worried about Crawford because the plate discipline, like we just talked about with Kyle Lewis, his plate discipline is still very much elite. Yeah. He is really great at taking walks. He does not strike out very often. But I am slightly worried in the fact that at the beginning of the season when he was getting on base every, you know, seemingly every other at bat, he was hitting the ball very hard. And his exit velocities were far higher than what we had seen previously from him. And in the last 15 games or so when he started to struggle, um, the exit velocities are back down. And it's kind of back down to those 2019 levels that we didn't love to see. So it's going to be something to keep in mind that JP, and I know his body looks better, he looks stronger, but he's going to need to start hitting the ball harder and with more authority again. Uh, let's talk about another guy. Uh, I know you want to talk about Dylan Moore, so we'll do that after after this gentleman. Austin Nola has been really, really strong, um, and and as a as a playing playing out of position for for him is is a little complicated. Um, what that even means for him? Uh, he was probably not a guy who projected as your starting catcher was going to be a utility guy, but Tom Murphy goes down. Here he is as your everyday catcher. He has been so good offensively, defensively. Um, and I was looking and listening to Scott Service talk about him, and he said how uh, he's playing more catcher than he ever has in his life. And I was like, okay, how, how much catcher had he ever played? So at LSU, he played 219 games at shortstop. He was infielder for five seasons in the minors. He had never, ever caught before before he switched to catcher while he was uh, in the Marlins Fall League uh, Incredible. a few years ago. And only because – his brother, Philadelphia Phillies pitcher Aaron Nola, needed someone to throw to. And so he just starts catching as if he's a major league catcher. Uh, and then all of a sudden now he's a catcher. And uh, Isn't that incredible? It is, Guys train their whole lives behind the dish and still become below average. Yeah. So he, he, is, he is baseball IQ off the charts um, from basically every stop he's been. He's had managers say that about him. Um, so, yeah, great, great find he's been fantastic for, for our fantasy baseball team COVID mojo um another fun we have the war we also a uh, quick aside we have the war leader in uh baseball mookie bets went sixth overall and i wanted him number yeah. one so um just saying but uh while austin nola was a pitcher or a catcher for the new orleans zephyrs all right minor league team actually i don't think he was a catcher yet uh so new orleans zephyrs on the front of their jerseys it says n-o-l-a new orleans louisiana and on, oh, the back of, on the back of his jersey, it said Nola. <laughs> so, Nola, Nola. Uh, yeah, I, and I looked on eBay, and I could not find a New Orleans Zephyrs Austin Nola jersey, but that would have been cool. But, yeah, Austin Nola, huge, huge fan of him. He's, he's tiny. He looks like he's supposed to play middle infield, but um, he's been a damn, damn good catcher so far. I'm super torn on what to do with Austin Nola because I do think he's a really good player. Yeah. Uh, it just – Forget about the bat, the versatility to be able to catch, play shortstop, play third base, play second base. Even we've even seen him in the corner outfield positions. We've seen him in left field. We've seen him in right field. So that sort of versatility to have out of your backup catcher, and he's not even hitting like a backup catcher. He's raking right now. And he, again, you know, DePoto's whole thing, control the zone, control the zone. We've heard it over and over and over again. And now he finally has guys. And you can say what you want about DePoto, but at least he's executing on his own vision. And whether that vision is going to bear fruit is yet to be seen. But he has guys who control the zone. 
Nola does not swing and miss very often. Nola does not chase. Nola it gets into good counts and does damage with uh, pitches that you should do damage with. He's not overwhelming in terms of exit velocity or launch angle or anything like that. He's not really a stat cast darling. But what he does is he finds pitches to hit and he hits them well. And that's, I mean, and no, it sounds simple when you put it like that, but that is such a skill set now that people don't really have. You have GMs who favor guys like Joey Gallo, who, you know, even if it's a 2 or a 2 slider out of the strike zone, they still want guys with that stat cast power to just pull one out of the, pull one out of the yard. Nola's not going to do that. He's going to wait until he gets the pitch right in this, you know, center cut and he's going to do damage with it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that it's, it's out of your backup catcher or supposed backup catcher. He's put up over one war already this season. So he's on pace over a regular 162 game season to put up, you know, four, five, six war. That's incredible. Obviously, I don't think he would be doing that, but at least there's something there. So what do you do with him? Uh, Tom Murphy will come back at some point. Tom Murphy looks like the guy. I mean, all of these people are probably stopgaps to Cal Raleigh. I mean, you, you, you don't yeah. know that for sure that Cal Raleigh is going to pan out, so it's nice to have. The problem with Nola is Nola's, Nola's not young. Yeah. I mean, I know he's only been in the majors for a couple of years, last year being his first real shot, but he got there. He's really late to the party. He's almost 30 already. There's not a lot of track record for catchers. And, and granted, he's an interesting fringe case too because he just Those, started playing catchers. legs are more spry but, than your average 30-year-old catcher. Yeah, there's not a lot of track record for catchers maintaining productivity into their mid-30s. You see it with Joe Maurer. You saw it with Buster Posey, even these all-time great catchers. So it's it's hard to say that he's going to still be productive when the contention window comes because we do think the contention window is 2021, 2022. Hard to say that he's still going to be this iteration of Austin Nola. So I, I'm i on the fence, but I think at this point, I know my answer to all these things is always trade everybody, but he doesn't quite line up with your window. And like me and you were talking about before the podcast with Hanager you have to try and take these guys at their peak because you may not ever get another chance. Yeah, so so Nola is is an enigma. We might talk about him in just a sec for, for possible trades, but um, I, I know you want to talk about Dylan Moore, so what do you have for, for Demo? So Demo, I like that name. You know how I just got over talking about how Nola's not a stat cast guy and he doesn't hit the ball particularly hard, all that stuff? Yeah. Dylan Moore is in the top 10% of pretty much every good stat cast category that you'd want. Exit velocities, launch angles, all these things out of a really small frame. And he doesn't strike out an overwhelming amount. He walks a fair amount. Dylan Moore, I mean, I know how me and you have talked about Shed Long and, uh, you know, there's been a lot of hand-wringing over the middle infield. Is J.P. Crawford, are his gains real? is shed long and an actual long-term solution. And then even at third base, we always talk about, well, you can't trade Seager because you don't really have, or you don't need to trade Seager because you don't really have a, uh, a good, uh, uh, you know, guy coming in the pipe at third base. I really think a lot of Mariners fan base, and I'm guilty of this too. I think we care a lot too much about prospect pedigree. Dylan Moore never had prospect pedigree. He was never a top hundred guy. He was never even a top 200 guy. But what we're seeing now at the major league level out of Dylan Moore gives me every reason to believe that he can be, and are, if he is not already, he can be a above average regular. 
and not just an average guy who, you know, you throw out there. He could be a, a solid two to three win player. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you talk about surprises earlier. That's, that's one of them. Um, a guy who, again, has versatility across, across the outfield, um, can play a little infield, uh, and, you know, has, has really succeeded in every, every, every opportunity he's had, uh, more so this year because there's just less, less flotsam in the way from him to getting at bats. But, uh, yeah, I, I really like Dylan Moore. And I think there's still, believe it or not, there's still some lingering um, feelings about that really bad three-error game that he had. If you were, Or three-error inning, not three-error game. He had a three-error inning in the ninth inning of a 2019 game that cost them – I think it might have cost them the game. I'm not even sure anymore. But I think that was everyone's first impression of Dylan Moore, and I still think he's trying to shake that off, believe it or not. Three errors in one game uh, would have put him, like, third on that, that team. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think Tim Beckham did that with, with regularity. Um, that was a horrific – defensive team and by the way you had ryan healy playing third base oh my god ryan healy playing third base and across from him on the diamond was uh daniel vogelback um who may he may his mariners 10-year rest in peace he has been traded yeah we're gonna miss him uh will we i don't know um well we're gonna miss not his skill set but we're gonna miss him yeah he uh he was what we got him from the mike montgomery deal with the the yeah and like, so nothing ventured, nothing gained. I think gambling a middle reliever like Mike Montgomery for the potential at what we saw Vogie could be. And be, we did see Vogie at his best, and it was very, very good. It was. Um, really so good. I think that was I think that was a fine gamble to take right there. And I have no problem with them taking it. And now we got cash. Um, yeah. So it's, cash is cool. Uh, let's move to the bullpen, which this will be the first time. I think this is our fourth uh, pod of the season. This is the first time we're even touching the bullpen because yeah. uh, we had so much disdain for it at the beginning of the year and didn't really know um, what was worth talking about because there's so many guys who just didn't have appearances yet um, or enough appearances to really talk about, and that's probably still the case. Uh, but there's there's some qualitative stuff that, that's, that's interesting, and, and one of those things is – is Joey Gerber, a guy who yeah. uh, has a extremely funky delivery, um, just kind of looks like it, he kind of explodes out of his body to, to yeah. throw a pitch. He himself looks a lot like Andy Samberg. I don't know if you've seen Yeah, he that. does. Um, but uh, he's just a, a slider fastball guy, and this is this is your, your favorite guy in the bullpen. Why is that? I just – I like – so there's – usually you have guys like Kayon Kella, who I think he's with the Pirates now. He's one of those guys who's a funky delivery guy. And that works because after you're seeing like 97, 98 from a starter coming right out of the shoot, same shoot every single time, having a guy who throws 83 and comes from all these weird different angles can really mess with you. Yeah. Uh, but what we're seeing with Gerber is a guy who comes from all these weird angles, but can also pump the gas. He can hit 94, 95, and he has a good wipeout slider but he's coming from really strange angles. And I think after you see a guy coming and most of these guys um, on the Mariners are usually delivering from a, a pretty standard starting pitcher angle, meaning at least three quarters arm slot, you know, everyone's got the elbow, you know, the L or the whatever they call it when you're in pitching camp, you got the L thing going on. Um, And then you have Gerber who kind of goes across his body, but with a four seam fastball, it's a really unique, really different style of pitching and you know at this point we've seen in our lifetimes watching the Mariners 
a thousand probably different sort of relievers. And he has struck me as was, a guy who has a really year alone was Yeah. <laughs> but he strikes me as a guy who has a really unique skill set that not a lot of people can replicate. So I'm, I'm I don't know if he's going to be great, but I think he's at least going to be interesting to see. Another uh, fastball slider guy is, is Taylor Williams, who is the mm-hmm. closer, closer so far this year. Um, he is the slider. I mean, the slider is, is plus, and yeah. it, it has allowed him to have some modicum of success in, in a nice role um, that you know, he probably won't assume for the future with the Mariners as, as their closer, but um, he's getting high leverage situations. My question to you is, do you know who Matt Whistler is? Yeah, he was on the team last year. Was he really? He was a Mariner? Yeah. Yeah, he was on the team last year. He's now on the Twins? Yeah, he's on the Twins. I think we <laughs> traded him to the Twins, yeah. Well, I have power to edit this out if I want to. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was on the Mariners last year. Whistler. Anyways, Matt Whistler is now on the Twins and now is throwing gas. Um, not gas, but he is pitching very well um, as, as the Twins opener and in different situations, but in his last appearance, um, he threw 30 pitches for the Twins, and 27 of them were sliders. Oh, my God. Uh, and he, this, so far this season, is throwing 80% of his pitches as sliders. And it was an article on, on um, MLB.com basically about how the Twins don't care about what pitches you're using and establish the fastball and all of those types of things. Whatever your best pitch is, whatever the most effective way, let's figure out a way for you to throw it in different positions uh, to get guys out and the twins themselves throw a ton of breaking pitches as a staff that they'll throw breaking pitches high in the zone. They are busting convention everywhere. Uh, and so it's even better that Whistler was a Mariner last year and obviously was not used to the same degree that he's being used uh, to, to this year at the twins. My question is with a guy like Williams, what stops teams from just saying, okay, your slider's great fastball, not so much, just throw the damn slider over and over and over uh, and let's let's get get people out. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things just off the top of my head. I wonder about the health aspect. You see that with Lance. McCullers. You see that with Lance McCullers. He was uh, probably the guy doing this before this even became a cool thing to do. They said, "Oh, your curveball is really good. Let's just have you throw 60% curveballs." And he's a starting pitcher. But obviously, Lance McCullers hurt his arm. I I think there is some sort of a consideration you have to put on the fact that. Listen, throwing a baseball is already extremely an unnatural thing for an arm to do. And then trying to throw it with spin is just adding even more stress to the arm because you're flexing the arm in a weird way and you're trying to spin your arm around in a weird way that doesn't really, biomechanically speaking at least, probably feel the best for your arm. You know what I mean? So I think there's got to be some consideration on on the injury aspect. It's the same reason kids aren't allowed to throw curveballs in Little League Baseball until they're 13, 14 years old. Um, I think, I think, yeah, it's, it's a great point. I think that this experiment only works if you are a one inning every four games type guy as a part of a a bullpen staff, um, because otherwise you're just going to combust your assets, uh, and break them before they actually do anything for you. And then number two, and I want to see, I don't know, my intuition would tell me that the more I, I'll do a, a search on this tonight after the podcast and I'll text you with my answers. But my intuition would be that the more you throw breaking balls, the less effective they become. I feel just 
it's a different sort of pitch than a fastball, whereas a fastball is a challenge pitch, like here, come see if you can hit the heat. Whereas a breaking ball is designed sort of to try and catch people thinking here comes the fastball and then it breaks on them. Mm -hmm. So if you're throwing 80% breaking balls, I don't know. And obviously it's worked for Whistler so far this year, but I don't know how effective that's going to be in the long run. If guys can just sort of expect the slider to be coming, but maybe he has two different types of sliders. Maybe he has yeah. different shapes, you know, so I'll yeah. have to the I'll article. Have to do research on that. The article talked about how Whistler's slider is especially um, effective because of how late it breaks. Uh, and there's a certain commit point. So imagine um, just it's, – it's like at the end of a shot clock, you know, or at the end of a, a basketball game, like the, there's no possible way you can get a shot off in 0.3 seconds or less. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same thing. Once a pitch is a certain distance from you, there's no way the batter can, can swing. Differentiate. Yeah. Or, yeah. Exactly. And, and – and, find it from where it would go and so the yeah, way whistler's slider breaks um within a certain you know distance to the batter allows it to be so effective so not all not all breaking pitches are created equal in that way his specific late breaking slider uh, is something that the twins really coveted when they were trying to get him because they, they could project him being exactly what they have now and just a slider machine you know who we need and to have twins, on this by the podcast? way are uh oh, yeah. Maybe the favorite to win the AL. They are, they are yeah, very, very, very good. Very good pitching staff, uh, very good offense. Bastion of, of analytics with Rocco Baldelli, as you said. Uh, so, a, a model franchise in a lot of ways, at least right now. Well, you know, this whole conversation about Whistler that we're having, you know who we need to bring on the podcast because it's something that neither you nor I know all that well. We need to see or talk to somebody who really understands pitching like not pitching like oh FIP and XFIP and you know all these things like somebody who can tell us like how does a guy achieve getting late break on his slider versus regular break on his slider or stuff like that like what biomechanically do they do to like get the shape of the curveball to be 12-6 versus kind of more of like a slurve you know how, is this, how do is those this that thing we were doing last year where we were challenging Eric Jensen's manhood every time we were on a podcast <laughs> you think Eric knows? I'm talking about like Kyle Bodie from Driveline or something like that. Like some one of those guys who studies this for a living. Yeah, Eric could get us um, at the at least how it might work uh, physically. But but yeah, the um, the the guest potential here is is uh, is really untapped. We haven't done that as a collab team. Yeah, pitching has always been sort of the black box. You know, like I don't know how a guy makes a, 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 a two different changeups. Like you see it with Zach Granke. He has a fast changeup that kind of breaks, and then he has a slow changeup, which breaks the other way. And it's all interesting. It's all about how the ball comes off the finger and the kind of wrist action they're using and all these little tiny, tiny things that happen in the hand. But then when you let it go 60 feet, these breaks can come become really dramatic. Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about another guy who fits the same fastball slider comp or uh, profile, and that's Johan Ramirez, who has, is a really intriguing physical prospect. I mean, he's 6'5", very lanky, um, and his, his uh, baseball savant page of where his pitches end up looks like just a fat electron cloud. Yeah. Because, uh, his, his control issues are, are – uh, No bad. Yeah, he's uh, he's liable to to burn an O2 and, and and walk a guy, but he uh, he has intriguing stuff. Um, good fastball, live arm, sliders there. It's just consistency. And Jerry Depoto was talking about him specifically on the wheelhouse of just 
doing the same thing correctly over and over is really, really hard, but they bet on a guy like Ramirez because his athletic profile uh, is so tantalizing that if they can get him there, that is an absolute piece and something every team wants. So I said it when we, we talked about the Rule 5 drafts probably three or four months ago when they drafted Ramirez from the yeah. Astros. And I said, if you squint really hard, he looks like Edwin Diaz. And there's been nothing he's shown in all of his time that has moved me off that opinion. His mm -hmm. stuff is absolutely electric. He looks like Edwin Diaz. He just doesn't control the ball that well. And granted, there's a lot of guys whose stuff can look like Edwin Diaz. Um, Ed, Edwin Diaz's struggles aside right yeah. now. I'm talking about Meredith Edwin Diaz. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that being said, like there's a lot of guys who can have their stuff look like Edwin Diaz. It's the matter of of um, actually getting that stuff in the zone and in the zone where you want it to be. But the spin rates, all that, the vertical and horizontal movement on all of his pitches, it looks a lot like Diaz. And listen, the Astros aren't a stupid organization. They would not have left Johan Ramirez unprotected if there weren't some major, major flaws that they didn't think they could work out. If they thought they easily had the next Edwin Diaz in the bag, he would have been on their 40-man roster and he would have been protected from the Rule 5 draft. So there are issues that are going to have to be overcome for him to untap that potential. Maybe the Mariners think that they can do it. Maybe, maybe it will never come to fruition. But again, this is the type of gamble that you need to take when you're a rebuilding team. Take all the gambles you can and eventually one of those things is going to stick like uh, Kyle Lewis, like uh, Austin Nola, like a Dylan Moore. Quickly through the rest of the bullpen, just give me your uh, zero through five, five being, you know, this, this is a piece, zero being get this guy out of my, my freaking face yeah. uh, with, with some of these names in the bullpen as, as, as far as their future with, with the Mariners are really in baseball. Uh, Matt McGill. Three. Yoshihisa Hirano. Zero. Yeah, I haven't seen too much of him. Uh, Austin Adams is, is hurt. We'll see him eventually. Dan Altavilla? Five. Five, five, for, Austin, five for Austin Adams. Five yeah. for Austin Adams, okay. And, yeah. and Altavilla? Negative five. Negative <laughs> ten. Negative thirty. The, the thick god himself, Eric Swanson. <laughs> uh, four. Swanson's ERA is catastrophic, but I do like what I see out of him. He's throwing 99 now all of a sudden. His stuff is playing up in the bullpen. I really yeah. think they're going to get him there. Uh, maybe that maybe, I mean, he, he was a really nice kind of side piece that came back in that, that Paxton trade, but uh, yeah. looking, looking good. Uh, Carl Edwards Jr. Haven't seen too One. much of health. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brian Shaw. Negative, even less and more negative than Altavilla. Like, I don't even, he is in like the, like negative, I don't know, negative infinity range. You know how like Tom Wilhelmson was was the bartender because like the, that was the narrative like they literally pulled him out of like uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of cowgirls to throw throw innings. Yeah. Brian Shaw actually looks like we pulled him out of cowgirls. To, to, <laughs> uh, can I can I channel my inner Jerry Depoto talking about Brian Shaw? Is he r roughly a? Bum? He is roughly terrible. He is roughly <laughs> the worst player I've ever seen. And uh, how about Nestor Cortez then? Uh, like a one. He's not a piece. We never talked about the moment where Cortez tried to throw, like, the Ephus pitch against Albert Pujols and just got absolutely yeah. cranked. Nestor is not – I mean, you know what's interesting about Nestor Cortez? He was one of those Yankees hype prospects. You know how the Yankees ha always have, like, the guys who are terrible, but everyone hypes them up because they're Yankees prospects? He was one of those guys. Like, he was a top 50 prospect at one point. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I haven't seen it with the, the Mariners at all. Um, speaking of prospects and, and ones that will certainly come back, I'm, I'm sure the, the, the Mariners are, are six days away from being uh, players in the trade deadline. I think it's, it's been put out there by Buster only that uh, Taiwan Walker especially is, is uh, a name that will most likely be moved, which makes an awful lot of sense given his contract with the Mariners, given mm-hmm. his, his youth, um, and just he's a durable starting pitcher with – you know, who's somewhat reliable, which makes him an asset um, for a team that just needs a fourth or fifth starter at this point. But there's a website that you are a big fan of, uh, baseballtradevalue.com. You can propose trades and, um, you know, have them work value-wise. And uh, so you've had some fun on the the site, maybe with some Taiwan Walker deals. You can throw Marco in, Kyle Seeger, Austin Nola. How, How crazy do you get? Yeah, I mean, the thing that with Taiwan and I've been doing a lot of Taiwan try like sort of trade value things, and there is not a guy. If you were just to go one to one Taiwan for somebody coming back, now granted, if you wanted to put like Nola in the package with Walker, then you know we're talking about a, a better, slightly better piece. But if you're talking about just Taiwan Walker and somebody coming back for him. I, I don't want to be the rain cloud, but you're not going to get at somebody you've ever even remotely heard of before. It's just not going to happen. A month of Taiwan Walker, who is a fine, you know, he's fine. He's a number, fine number three, four, five guy. In this weird season where, you know, teams are hesitant to even give anything up, you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. And generally, as a rule of thumb, the guys – who you trade are never as valuable as you think they're going to be. It's just the way it is. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that's about right. I mean, there's not a lot for the Mariners to work with. I mean, Taiwan seems like an absolute guarantee. Oh, and here's, here's the other consideration this year specifically is that uh, you, in order to trade, the trades have to come from the 60 player player pools. Um, it can't be, a trade of a minor league guy right now who's not in that 60 player pool because you know I don't know that was the rule that you know they came to agree on with the MLBPA and the MLB you know commissioner that so everything has so it's limiting the type of guy not only limiting the uh is the factor that he's only going to be there for a month but it's also limiting the fact that these guys just don't have as many resources to play around with right now because they're limited to 60 guys whereas in the past, they had their whole minor leagues at their disposal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, you know, just your, your player to be named later is literally impossible. You have to name the player yeah. <laughs> to, mm-hmm. to, for, for, for this deal. Um, we've seen a lot on baseball trade values and also just in uh, MLB rumors that Taiwan Walker's destination would be uh, possibly to the Braves, who lost Mike Soraka and therefore mm-hmm. um, are a starter down and have been for most of the season. Uh, maybe the Cubs. There are going to be not that many sellers and not that many buyers for a lot of reasons this year. So the Mariners firmly establishing themselves, I think, as a seller. Uh, but this, it's not like they're talking with 29 other teams right now. No. I think realistically, the teams that would be of need for Taiwan Walker, you already called it the Braves, the Cubs, the Yankees, the Blue Jays, and the Rays. There's really five teams that really would covet the services of a guy like Walker right now at least yeah anything else in the in the trade department before we move on 
No, I again, I think I alluded to this last week, but I'm really continuing and I'm going to continue to pound the drum that they need to trade Marco Gonzalez right now. Um, again, it's the same thing as the Hanniger thing. You have to – if these guys – you don't, if you think you have five starters who can be Marco level or better, you have to get rid of Marco right now. And I think I would – it's again, it's a gamble, but I think it's a gamble worth taking when you know you have Sheffield locked in. I believe in Kikuchi, and I think out of that huge abundance of, of, of pitching prospects we have in the minor leagues, you're going to find three. Mm-hmm. I, I really have to believe in my heart that if you can't find three out of, you know, the 10 or so guys I really think can be major league quality starters, you probably shouldn't be in the game anyway. You shouldn't be in player development anyway. Doesn't the, the 60-man uh, restrictions on, on who you can trade make it seem like trading Marco now is, is a little bit of a, of a waste? Well, I think a lot of teams for at least Mar- – so Marco's in a different boat than Walker. Walker is going to be traded for a guy who pr- probably should not be on, uh, on a uh, 60-man roster at this point. But Marco is going to be traded for – should be traded for at least a, a, a sort of top-ish guy who, you know, the Mariners brought all their top 15 prospects to their 60-man player pool. A lot of teams are doing the same. So I think actually, believe it or not, the t- talent there for Marco is higher than that of, uh, than that of uh, some other guys. Gotcha. So nor- in a normal time, you'd trade Tywin Walker for someone's 45th best prospect. And now that, that 45th best prospect is not a possibility given the 60th position. Exactly. Exactly right. Makes sense to me. Uh, all right, let's get out of here. We already established who our, our Burnsy of the week was, Don Brenneman. How was you? You earned that quite early. Uh, who's your Hydro this week? Well, I mean, it's another guy we talked about, but the market improvement that Kyle Lewis has made, that's the guy I'm rooting for the hardest right now just because it's so it would be so important to the team's rebuild to have him manning center field every day. Yeah, we, um, we texted the other day and, and um, you know, slobbered over the idea of Kyle Lewis being in center and then Jared Kelenic and, and Julio Rodriguez mm-hmm. in either corner upfield position. Long way to go, but uh, it's, it's, it's doable. Yeah, and God, that would be phenomenal. Uh, but that's, that's probably a, a start of the 2022 season um, yeah. thing. But, uh, you know, this is, this is found money right here with Kyle Lewis because – Yeah, exa- that's a great way to describe it. It's found money. It's like finding a 20 in a pair of jeans you didn't know you had. Yeah. Uh, mine is Kendall Graveman because um, there was yeah. – Not a couple weeks ago or probably a week and a half ago where he um, addressed what he was going through. He was talking to Brian Divish and a reporter for the, uh, the uh, Tacoma News Tribune and candidly talked about how he is experiencing a, a, um, a tumor – on the C6 vertebrae of, of his spine um, that is not growing and is not um, malignant, but... Yeah, it's not cancerous, right? Yeah, it's just there. He's a tumor in his yeah. neck. And they can't operate on it because there's a very, very small window between his spine and where the tumor is, tumor is and they don't want to mess with that. And this is a guy who's had lots of... Wait, so they, can, they can't... I actually don't know. They can't operate on it ever? He was saying that at, at, at now it, w- it just doesn't make any sense for them to operate on it because of the risk and for how young he is. And yeah. So, but if it gets like painful into his older age, then yeah. 
So Kendall Graveman spoke candidly about it. First of all, I don't know if you've seen the Aristocats recently, by, by chance. Mm. There, there is a character in the, the Aristocats, the old, uh, the old dog um, with the big droopy ears, and he has his oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. southern accent, and that's what that's what Kendall Graveman sounded like when he was talking. Kendall Graveman is is south as as hell, uh, talking about his faith and talking about what keeps him going and how hard this has been for him over the years. Just like Tom Brenneman, he's a man of faith, but actually, I think he really is. Yes, uh, yeah. and uh, it was it was just really heart wrenching to hear Graveman talk about it. Graveman's, uh, you know, it, there's nothing physically wrong with with him, like his legs and his arms and his body. Why why is it that like it always seems to be this way with like some people are just snake bitten, like in life, not even in baseball, but he just seems like one of those guys who he just gets right to the edge, and some shit always happens with him. And it really sucks. It's got to be the most fucking frustrating thing on earth to have to deal with. Because he, does, he, I mean, the stakes for this guy, not even his health. That's like number one, obviously. That's the number one priority. But like to have worked as hard as he had and to come back and he's pumping like 97, 98. And then he finds out like, hey, my, my back hurts or like my, you know, my neck hurts. I think that's what pulled him out initially was neck spasms. Yep. And then to find that out, it's just got to be devastating. It'd be like me losing one of my restaurants or something. Like that's the, you know, that's the level of, of care that it's his life. It's his profession. But like losing your restaurant to an earthquake, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, like something. Like that, nothing that was my fault, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Something completely out of your control. Um, and just like I'm telling you, it's at the very end of, of uh, the most recent Extra Innings podcast with, with Ryan Divish. I was glad he included it. Um, because the audio was just heartbreaking to hear to hear Graveman talk about it. Graveman will pitch again with the Mariners this year, might pitch well into the future, but he also has a tumor in his neck, and yeah. um, that is just a discomforting reality to have when you are anybody, professional athlete uh, or not. Um, so my heart goes out to Kendall Graveman and his family. I just think the way he was open and talking about it was really – really admirable and, yeah. and he should be coming back this year at some point so let's root hard for him yeah yeah and as well as we were um after his first start when he he wowed us all because i actually really do think he's a he's a, like all the emotional stuff aside i actually think he's a really good baseball player yeah he was very fun his yeah. last his yeah. last inter-squad game was like truly electrifying how, how yeah. well he was pitching and, and at moments against the astros and a few other teams um, all right. Well, that's that's a full podcast, and then some. We we left a couple off off the table the last few weeks, and got back on it this this week. But um, good shit. We finally talked about the bullpen. We put Don Brenneman to bed. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, by the time we're talking next week, we will probably have a trade to discuss. Yeah. Uh, and some. And uh, go to ilterazzocarmine.com slash shop. Yeah, that that was the joke at the start of the podcast before it, uh, we talked about zoom recording um is that because it's a video podcast i can see that you're covered in tomato sauce and i was going to ask why <laughs> and then you're going to explain the sauces but yeah uh phil and, and the fine folks at, at carmines have started to uh to can their own sauces uh, what, what's available what are your favorites uh we have pretty much every sauce that you would want we have nine sort of sauces demi glaze caesar dressing marinara primavera garlic oil pesto you know, anything that you can find at the restaurant, you can find on our website. Uh, to me personally, I think the things that can the best and that I really enjoy out of the 
cans are our antipasties. We're canning like the roasted red peppers, the vinegar eggplants, all those really good things. So anyway, it is like you said, you know, imagine losing your restaurant to an earthquake. Well, imagine losing it to a pandemic, you know, things you can't really control, but we're going to, we're, we're doing great. Just a little update for everyone. We're doing fine. Business is picking up. We're not in danger, but this really would help if you guys could, you know, find it in your hearts to order some of these sauces. And then what's that URL one more time? Ilterazzocarmine.com slash shop. Boom. Yeah, we will uh, promote that in the, the uh, publication of this, this podcast. My parents were just at Carmine's um, last Friday, I believe. Uh, yeah. You, you yeah. were not there, much to their disappointment, but uh, your older brother, CJ, filled in admirably, and they said that uh, he is the preferred brother. Uh, going oh, well, I'll have to win them back. You made a mean Smith, Smith, and, Smith and Wesson, which is the key to my mom's heart. Um, yeah. So good job on CJ, uh, and thanks to you all for the constant hospitality. Well, thank you, and I really appreciate it. And uh, your mom taught me how to make a Smith & Wesson, so that's all I'll ever always be indebted to her. Boom, boom. Uh, all right, Phil, well, good stuff. We will talk again soon. All right, take care. Love you, buddy. Peace.